Five major state-owned Chinese companies are about to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. China's regulator says it's by choice, but an ongoing U.S.-China debate may suggest otherwise. Some officials say investment company BlackRock is putting climate issues at the top of its agenda, even above making profit for U.S. pension funds. Beijing has stopped talking about its economic goals for the year, hinting at a worsening Chinese economy. And the problem is spilling over into the job market. And the U.S., Indonesia and some allies held a joint military exercise. China condemned the drills as looking for conflict, while a top U.S. admiral said the opposite. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. In a rare move, five major Chinese state-owned companies will delist from the New York Stock Exchange. The announcement came Friday. The companies include oil giant Sinopec, China Life Insurance, Aluminum Corporation of China, PetroChina, and Sinopec Shanghai Petrochemical. Each of them said that they would apply to delist this month. The five companies were flagged by the U.S. securities regulator as failing to meet auditing standards. While China's regulator cited U.S. scrutiny for the move, but said the companies decided to delist for their own business considerations. Washington has long demanded complete access to the books of Chinese companies listed in the U.S., but Beijing has refused to allow it, citing national security reasons. Chinese companies that don't comply face getting ousted from U.S. exchanges. More than 270 companies are at risk of delisting. Some of them are China's largest companies, including e-commerce giants Alibaba and JD.com and search engine company Baidu. Amid growing China threats, the U.S. and its Indo-Pacific allies held their largest joint military exercises ever, sending troops toward water, land and sky. Over 5,000 soldiers participated. Investment company BlackRock manages an estimated $10 trillion. That's more than the entire GDP of some first world countries. Some of that money comes from state pension funds that were invested in BlackRock. According to some attorneys general, state law thus requires that BlackRock has to maximize its profit, choosing investments that are expected to bring the highest return possible. Attorneys general from 19 states now accuse BlackRock of prioritizing the climate agenda over profit. BlackRock recently sent a letter to several states claiming it has joined climate organizations merely for dialogue. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich doesn't agree, saying BlackRock isn't focusing on dialogue only. According to the AG, anyone purchasing a BlackRock fund is forced to support climate goals, whether they like it or not. West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey accused the company of coercion, saying this is an example of a company pushing their climate agenda using investments to force companies and people to abide by their ideology. For example, the AGs accuse BlackRock of pulling funds from companies that don't abide by climate goals. BlackRock has denied wrongdoing, saying it offers a wide range of products and strategies. Some critics believe that promoting green energy makes the world more reliant on communist China. That's because China dominates the production of solar panels and electric vehicle batteries, while at the same time ignores its own pollution. 
China's latest COVID-19 lockdown orders have hit the home of the world's largest wholesale market, Yu. The eastern Chinese city may not sound familiar, but if you buy things made in China, it might be closer than you think. From zippers to Christmas decorations, Yiwu produces an estimated 60 percent of the world's cheap consumable goods. But on Thursday, local authorities imposed a three-day lockdown to contain a recent COVID-19 outbreak. Factories were forced to shut down unless they produced medical supplies or other necessities. Though some factories were allowed to continue operations under the conditions of so-called closed-loop production meaning workers don't leave the factory. Under the model, employees eat, sleep, and virtually live inside their place of work. Commercial activities like wholesale markets and restaurants were also suspended, and restrictions were placed on vehicles going in and out of the city. Before the pandemic, Ewell's products were exported to more than 200 countries, and more than 10,000 foreign businessmen visited the city every week. Some areas of Tibet's capital, Lhasa, are currently under static management after the city reported 18 positive COVID-19 cases in the area. Lhasa launched citywide virus testing on Monday. The city has temporarily closed its public recreation facilities. Its scenic spots like the Potala Palace, Nobulinka and the Tibet Museum also suspended services from Tuesday. Residents from low-risk areas can move across the city with a negative test report taken within 48 hours. Our cleaners have bought some emergency disinfection materials. We have done comprehensive disinfection work in public areas such as corridors and elevators. On Sunday, Tibet reported 22 infections, marking an end to the region's 920-day record of no new cases. Vehicles swept away by flash floods and five construction workers reported missing. Heavy rain in northern China's Shanxi province is causing major damages. That's according to a report from Chinese state broadcaster CCTV on Friday. The storm began on Wednesday at 10 p.m. and lasted until 11 a.m. the next morning. China News Service called it the heaviest downpour the region has seen this year. A local business owner said he had never seen such severe flooding in his life, with floodwaters rising to over three feet. He said mud, sand and water have drenched his shop and that it may take days of work and heavy equipment to clean. Authorities have activated flood emergency response protocol. It's still unknown if the storm caused casualties. Graduation equals job loss. That's a popular saying in China, and an especially true one in this year's COVID-19-struck labor market. It's getting so bad that Beijing says it will no longer be able to hit its annual economic goals. Let's zoom in. Liu Chen is looking for a job armed with her new master's degree. She said two employers interviewed her, but later told her the position she applied for had been eliminated. Others asked her to take lower pay. She is one of 11 million new Chinese graduates, desperate for work, as China's COVID-19 control policies force factories, restaurants, and other employers to close. As for surviving companies, they're cutting job positions and wages. From the moment I started looking for a job, I felt as if my future were smashed by a machine, and I don't know if I can piece it together. According to the China Institute for Employment Research, as well as job hunting website Jiaoping.com, 
there were almost two graduates competing for every job opening from April to June. That figure is up from 1.4 the previous year. But the simple fact that Chinese graduates are struggling in their search for jobs is politically sensitive this year, as Communist Party leader Xi Jinping has his eyes set on extending his time in power. China's labor market has been disrupted by periodic week-long or even month-long lockdowns, especially in the country's industrial centers like Beijing and Shanghai. Uncertainty in the labor market may even increase. So for university students, the most important thing is the ability to adapt. Zhang said companies are slashing hiring needs due to what he called a life-saving mindset. They're doing what they need to, to survive. Compared with an average of 5.5% for all ages, people aged 24 or younger endured an official unemployment rate of almost 20% in June. And that number gets worse when taking the latest graduates into account. Back in March, China's Premier Li Keqiang set a goal, create 13 million new jobs this year, and said 16 million people were expected to be looking for work. But he didn't say how many people would lose their jobs due to business shutdowns. According to a survey conducted by China's largest community-based recruitment site, Leipin, one-third of Chinese companies surveyed said they plan to hire fewer fresh graduates. Around a quarter of the companies surveyed said they would hire more, though most of them are state-owned enterprises. China's severe pandemic control policies have caused severe economic losses across the country. It's to the point where the Chinese Communist Party has stopped talking about the possibility of hitting this year's growth target. Amid growing China threats, the U.S. and its Indo-Pacific allies held their largest joint military exercises ever, sending troops toward water, land and sky. Over 5,000 soldiers participated. The U.S. and Indonesia held annual joint combat exercises Friday on Indonesia's Sumatra Island after signs of growing maritime activity by China in the Indo-Pacific. Over 5,000 soldiers joined this year's exercises, making them the largest since the drills were established in 2009. The troops came from the U.S., Indonesia, Australia, Japan and Singapore. The joint drills began early this month in Indonesia, though China sees the expanded drills as a threat. Chinese state media have accused the U.S. of building an Indo-Pacific alliance, saying Washington wants to provoke conflict. But the U.S. Indo-Pacific commander says threats are what the U.S. is trying to avoid. Uh, the destabilizing actions by the PRC as it applied to the threatening activities and actions against Taiwan is exactly what uh, we are trying to avoid. And I can tell you from my seat, I spend every waking minute doing everything to ensure we are preventing conflict in the region. Uh, and that is my commitment to all of my partners. Every day we try to prevent war. Aquilino said the realistic training prepares the allies to come together in case of a crisis. Again, our desire is to build our relationships, build our interoperability, and be ready should we need to respond to any contingency. As the drills went on, Chinese state-run broadcaster CCTV aired footage of live fire drills recently conducted in the South China Sea and the Xinjiang region. Beijing said on Wednesday it had completed various tasks around Taiwan but would continue regular patrols. 
Angered by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei last week, China extended its largest ever military exercises in the waters surrounding the self-ruled island. Coming up, a large-scale cyber attack from China alongside the U.S. House Speaker's Taiwan visit. We look at how it impacted everyday life on the island. And U.S. pension funds invested in Chinese companies may be unknowingly supporting Beijing's military. Frank Gaffney, vice chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China, breaks it down. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit also triggered major backlash from Beijing, including an apparent cyber attack. Taiwanese citizens were quick to notice it. Here's a closer look. Warfare isn't just missiles and military drills. Cyber attacks also go hand in hand, a form of what's called cognitive warfare. They appear to be among the Chinese Communist Party's top choices in its toolbox. According to a Taiwan official, the island's government, military and businesses have suffered nearly 300 cyber attacks in a matter of days. Many were reportedly done by civilian hackers. But analysts warn of the presence of a Chinese Communist Party cyber warfare team called the Strategic Support Unit. Some believe the team played a part in the recent wave of cyber attacks and that it's just a warm-up. In the days following U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit, Taiwanese citizens have been put under what some reports call a mimic invasion of Taiwan. Cyber warfare has the unique ability to target the daily lives of citizens directly. Like when Taiwanese residents visited convenience stores, including 7-Eleven, only to find digital billboards and screens cursing Pelosi. 7-Eleven reacted quickly and asked all of its store locations to turn off their TVs, saying they've been hacked. At the same time, some people also noticed pro-Beijing songs playing on pro-Taiwan TV channels, as well as a surge of fake news on social media, claiming packs of Chinese fishing boats were heading to invade Taiwan. Taiwan's defense ministry confirmed these cyber attacks during a press conference. The Chinese Communist Party used its military operations paired with cognitive warfare to threaten and intimidate us with force, as well as psychological intimidation. Chen says there are mainly three components to Beijing's cognitive warfare efforts. To give the impression that China will take Taiwan by force, to weaken the Taiwan government authority, and to discourage Taiwan's people and military. Top U.S. pension funds have been investing in Chinese companies for years. Some of these companies have ties to the communist regime and the Chinese military. In other words, Americans' money may play a role in enhancing Beijing's military and surveillance capabilities. We spoke to Frank Gaffney, vice chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China, to find out more about what can be done. Currently, more than $152 billion of U.S. investment are held by state-owned enterprises based in China. This, according to a U.S. government document from last year. The same report found that American investors have allocated over $2.3 trillion to China in the last three decades. The American people. The American people unwittingly are having 160 million of us or so, by some estimates, our pension funds, retirement savings and, and other investments plowed 
by people in Wall Street like Larry Fink of BlackRock and Ray Dalio of State Street and Steve Schwartzman and others into the Chinese Communist Party's front companies, which are in some cases sanctioned by the United States government, working for the People's Liberation Army, or engaged in humanitarian travesties like Xinjiang. This is insane, and it has to stop. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal says diplomats want Chinese companies out of their retirement plan. It especially refers to the thrift savings plan for federal employees and members of the uniformed services. Some funds included in the plan are investing in Chinese companies linked to Beijing's military. With this, about $750 billion in federal retirement savings are going to China. People like Larry Fink, who is the largest single manager of the Thrift Savings Plan, the Federal Retirement Systems Funds, has this determination to invest that money in China. And he's uh, he put 35 companies that are uh, based in Hong Kong into the fund so that if uh, military personnel, civilian employees, past or present, want to invest in an international portfolio, they're automatically putting money into Chinese companies because there's no difference now between Hong Kong and, and China, of course. They're all enslaved. But here's the thing. Among those military personnel, as I said a moment ago, their investments are going into, in some cases, companies that are building weapon systems that are designed to kill them and perhaps the rest of us. And I can't imagine that any military personnel, or for that matter, other government employees, would think that is a wise investment. Gaffney said the situation would get even worse if a physical war broke out between China and Taiwan and if the U.S. got involved. And then on top of it, if, as I think is in prospect now, we wind up in a shooting war with China, all of that money is going to be gone. That's not going to be repaid. So there's no good reason for this to be done. Larry Fink is making a fortune off of it, to be sure, as are others on Wall Street. American investors, not so much. And they certainly now stand to lose everything that's being invested there in their name, mostly without their knowledge, by the Wall Street mavens if this thing goes kinetic. And that's, as I say, uh, very much a possibility at the moment. In China, all companies are obligated to follow the regime's orders. They all work for China, though. They all work for the Chinese Communist Party, whether they're owned by it, whether they are involved in these kinds of activities. They all, as you know, are obliged under national security and intelligence laws of China to participate in what's called civil-military fusion, where the government of China will be able to have access to whatever it wants, data, technology, output, and the like, and otherwise is able to control those ventures. This is the mortal enemy, and General Boykin is absolutely right. When you finance them, you are financing our demise. What can the average American do to help stop it? Gaffney has two suggestions. The first thing to do, if you are an investor, 
in American capital markets is to go to the people who are managing your funds, whether it's a pension fund, a 401k plan, a mutual fund, an exchange traded fund, an index fund, wherever your money is, go to the people who are deploying it for you and say, I don't want my money invested in the Chinese Communist Party. Get it out of there. And if they won't do it, get somebody else to manage your money. It's that simple. It is your money. It will be your savings that will be gone when, not if, this goes south. The other thing I would strongly commend to your listeners is we have something we call the brief. It was informed by the work of this Team B3 and our Committee on the Present Danger China, whose products you can find at presentdangerchina.org. This brief is designed first and foremost for those who seek elective office this fall at either the state or federal level who need to know what we are up against with China, specifically that they are at war with us. And we need to know that they are now clued up about the threat and that they are committed to take steps to protect our country against it. So if people want to learn more about that, they can also, the same place that they get our book, The CCP is at War with America, ccpatwar.com, they can find out information about the brief. They can help us connect with those elected people, the, the folks who seek your vote this uh, fall, and they can get information about the brief for their own information as well, ccpatwar.com. Gaffney added that the more the American people understand this reality, the more their elected representatives will understand, and the more certain it is to counter the Chinese Communist Party. Hundreds are displaced in South Korean capital Seoul. The poorest neighborhoods are still recovering from its heaviest rains in a hundred years and the resulting flooding. Here's more. In the South Korean capital, cleanup efforts after this week's deadly floods are underway. For 50-year-old Shilin resident Hyun Sig, that means bailing out water of his lower ground floor apartment using a plastic bowl. His situation bears uncomfortable similarities with the sewage-flooded semi-basement apartment depicted in the Oscar-winning South Korean film Parasite, a tale of growing social disparity in Asia's fourth largest economy. I live in a half-basement flat. I have to throw away all my belongings, computer and even dishes. I can't do anything about it. It happened because the poor live here and we don't have much money. It rained so much this time and this became a disaster. I had lived with hopes of living like other people, but that hope has disappeared due to this situation. I'm frustrated about how I should live here from now on. Now I have nothing to live on. While wealthier parts of the capital, such as glitzy Gangnam, have already begun to return to normal, large swathes of low-income districts, such as Shilim, remain inundated. On Monday, three family members living in the neighbourhood, including a woman with developmental disabilities, drowned in their lower ground apartment. Overall, at least 10 people have perished as a result of the torrential rain, which knocked out power lines, caused landslides and submerged roads and subways both across the capital and in neighbouring provinces. Although South Korea often experiences torrential rain during the summer, according to Korea's Meteorological Administration, it's the heaviest in 115 years. It added that as of Wednesday, six people are still missing, and 570 have at least temporarily lost their homes.
An official at the Guanax district office, which covers Shilim, said that recovery efforts can be slower there due to the concentration of tiny apartments and houses lining the narrow streets. Heinzig believes it will take him 10 days to get his apartment back to the point where he would move back in. He said the only help the government had offered was for temporary shelter at a gymnasium, which he rejected. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 1884779228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.